the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God. And the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. Samuel chapter 7 verse 15 through chapter 8. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah for his house was there and there he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure, the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war, and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. 
he will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. Well, good morning, church. Um, my name is Gary Miller, and I am uh, one of the elders here at the church, and I'll be uh, speaking to you from the book of Samuel. So just when you thought we were done with judges, along comes Samuel. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is take your Bibles and open them up to the book of 1 Samuel. I find it kind of interesting that um, the, the uh, story of the final judge just happens to be in a book other than Judges, which is why we didn't do the bumper video this morning. Uh, we had uh, live rather than video. So our focus today is going to be on chapter 8, but in order to understand Samuel and to understand the context of what is going on in Israel, we're going to need to begin in chapter 1. He has an interesting story, and it's one we need to follow. So put a marker in chapter 8 and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now it's here that we learn about the birth of of Samuel, and it was uh, a bit unusual. There are certain players that are involved in this story, and they turn out to be his mother and his father. His father's name was Elkanah, and his mother's name was Hannah. And they came from the city of Ramah. They were of the tribe of Ephraim. And you should have noticed that as we've been studying through the book of Judges that Many of the stories that we have uh, gone through actually come from that central part of Israel around the place called Ephraim. Elkanah and Hannah every year went to the place of worship, which at that time was in Shiloh. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It was in Shiloh, and that was the place where the tabernacle had been set up, and inside that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. This was also a time, as we're reading in Samuel here, that the Philistines continued to be causing trouble for Israel. So many of the people who have studied uh, this text and others believe that Samuel was a contemporary of some of the other judges, although he was quite young. Now, as we read the story of Samuel here in the first chapter, we found out 
that his mother had no children. Uh, look at verse 4. Uh, when we see at the end of the verse, it says, uh, And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved her, but the Lord had closed her womb. So we're seeing right away that this man, Elkanah, had two wives, and several children came from his one wife called Penina. But he deeply loved Hannah. And it's evidence to us from the fact that he gave her a double portion. Well, the relationship between the two ladies wasn't very good. As a matter of fact, we learned that Penina actually provoked Hannah. And it was most likely because she didn't have children. I kind of think at this point she's going, neener, neener, neener. I've got kids, you don't. And of course, in Israel at that time, that was causing great grief to the woman. So every year when they would go up to the sacrifice, Hannah pleaded with God, pleaded that he would give her a son. And let's look at that in uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, that's Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. Now, it's kind of interesting that she was praying this prayer in silence. And she was near the gate where Eli, the high priest, had been sitting, and so he was watching her. And it says that she was in great distress, so it was a very visible action for this woman praying earnestly unto the Lord. Well, Eli, after watching this, he, he actually thought she was drunk. It says so right here in the Bible. But Hannah answered and said, no, I'm not drunk. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. So Eli said, well, because of your earnestness, God will answer your petition. And the interesting thing, of course, is God does just that. He shows up just at the right time and provides just what Hannah had been praying for. So she gave a son. And to this son, she gave the name Samuel. Now, we can recognize right away that this was God's blessing to Hannah, but he also had plans for this young man. Why? Because Hannah, who made the vow, fulfilled that vow. And eventually, as he grew into a young boy, she presented Samuel to Eli as a servant of God for the rest of his days. It says that in verse 28 
Let's look there together. It says, so I have, uh, this is Hannah speaking, so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he, that's Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. That would be in Shiloh. Now notice that Samuel is a young boy. I mean, that must have been somewhat of a traumatic experience, right? You're taken away from your mother and your father and you're taken to Shiloh and you're there in the tabernacle with all of these priests and the sacrifices going on. And so every year when Hannah and Elkanah would come from Ramah to Shiloh, his mother would bring him a robe. Uh, I guess he was a growing boy and we all need new clothes every now and then. And then in verse uh, 21 of chapter 2, just keep moving with me here. In verse 21, we see, let's see, I got, I'm, trying, I'm trying to see it here. It's a little bit bright for me. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Well, this is kind of a miraculous birth, and we see that it has a particularly important role for Israel at this time, because God specifically calls Samuel to be a prophet and a judge over Israel. We notice that this was a time when God had not normally been in Israel, and I, I need you to move now with me to chapter 3 where we see that now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. That's a significant statement. For the Bible to say that the Lord, word of the Lord was rare. It speaks to the spiritual well-being of Israel, and I believe the ineffectiveness of Eli, the high priest, to lead Israel at that time. And so that causes me to remember the, the final words of the book of Judges. Do you remember that? It's what uh, Pastor Brian spoke of last week that said, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this was a very dark time in Israel as God didn't grace the land with his presence. But he knew, God knew that this land needed a judge, to bring them back into submission to him. So at this point, God personally calls Samuel. Now this is in chapter 3. Now it happens quite unusually. Uh, set the scenario like this. Eli is in one room sleeping. Samuel, the young lad, is sleeping in another. And he hears a voice. And it calls out to Samuel. At first, he doesn't realize who's calling him, so he gets up, like any young boy would do, and he goes into Eli, and he says, here am I. And I can imagine Samuel being roused from sleep, saying, what in the world is wrong with you? Go back to sleep. Well, God isn't um, prone to allow that to just go by, so he visits Samuel again, and he does it again. And each time, Samuel goes 
to Eli and says, hey, you're calling me. Here I am. Well, after the third time, Eli gets it. He understands. And he tells Samuel that the next time that God calls him, just speak to God and say, your servant heareth. That happens. God calls him a fourth time, and Samuel does that. Now, it's at this point, it's at this point that God gives a very difficult statement to this young boy. And he tells him that Eli and all of his sons are going to be killed. They're going to be destroyed all in the same day. Well, in the morning, Eli says, "Uh, did you hear from God again? Uh, Yep, I did. Okay, you got to tell me what he said. Now imagine that. You're Samuel, this young lad, and here's Eli, the old high priest, and he's saying, tell me exactly what God said. Uh, do you really want to know? Well, Samuel's an obedient boy, and so he tells him. And it's funny because Eli just seems to be resolved. Well, God's going to judge me. I guess that's going to happen. Well, it's at this point that we see that Samuel is affirmed. Uh, We don't know a lot about his life from the time that he's a young lad until we find him again in chapter 8 when he's old. But we read in chapter 3, verse 19. Look look at it with me, if you would. Thus, chapter 3, verse 19. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. That's a powerful statement. None of Samuel's words would fail. And all Israel, from Dan, which was way to the north, even to Beersheba, which was way to the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. This was a significant event. You see, after all of that time of God's silence, all of a sudden, a prophet rises up from God, And God's presence comes again into the land. God's presence probably showed up in the tabernacle, just as he did when Moses and the children of Israel were marching through the wilderness. But at this point, we know very little. Between chapter 3 and chapter 8, we know very little about Samuel and what goes on. Well, we still have those pesky Philistines and uh, they're a problem out there. They, there are some battles, and they uh, capture the Ark of the Covenant. And that's pretty important, but it doesn't tell us much about the man Samuel. And so we learn later on that Samuel has not only become a prophet, but he has become a judge. And I'd like you to see that in uh, the scripture reading that was given this morning. We're now in chapter 7, and we're in verse 15. It says, Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he was a circuit judge in verse 16. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. So what I've done is I've given you a map. It should be right here. Okay. So I want you to get oriented to where we are. Uh, You can see uh, Ramah is in the center of Benjamin. That's where uh, 
Samuel lived, and he went on this circuit-riding place from Gilgal to Bethel to Mizpah and then back to Ramah. I'd also like you to notice up in the upper place where Shiloh is, there's Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, and then all the way to the south is Beersheba. And so uh, up above Manasseh is where the tribe of Dan is. So you can see that this is central Israel, and that is where uh, our man Samuel did his judging. Now, um, notice that Samuel would always return to Ramah. It says that uh, in the word here. Then he returned to Ramah, for his house was there. But who else lived in Ramah? His mother lived there. And every year, remember? Every year, Hannah and Elkanah would come to Shiloh, and she'd bring him clothes. And so his home was where his mother was. I think that's kind of sweet. And, of course, I didn't figure that out. My wife had to tell me. So I appreciate that very much. I'm not a wife, so I don't, didn't get that. A mother. So now let's go to verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1. This is where we really take off and we learn about our lesson today. We see that Samuel is old. Notice that, and it came about when Samuel was old. Now, perhaps because of his age, he appointed his sons as judges in Beersheba. You remember that was way to the south. I, I think this was probably a regional decision. You see, the people from the north didn't have far to come down to uh, the cities uh, where um, Samuel was judging. And so the people from the south probably said, hey, you know, we're down here. Don't forget about us. And so he sent his sons down there. But we learned that was a bad idea, not a good idea. You see, his sons didn't follow in Samuel's footsteps. Uh, and they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and they perverted justice. That comes out in verse 3. But I need you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Um, it's not far from where we are. Just go uh, to your left a couple of books. And I'd like us to look together what God says about judges during this time. Deuteronomy chapter 16. And I'd like you to look at verse 18. Let's look at it together. I'm going to read it, but I'd like your eyes to land on it as well. God says to Moses, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. You should do this according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe binds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Well, isn't that exactly what happens when the sons of Samuel are appointed as judges? Uh, we read that they perverted justice and they took bribes, which is exactly against what the Lord had said. Well, this leads to some level of discontent among the elders of Israel, and they come to Samuel, and they tell him, hey, your sons, they're bad dudes. 
They are not doing what God says, and so we need a king. And I find it kind of interesting that the sins of Samuel's sons are present, and everybody knows about them. Samuel didn't seem to do much about that. Uh, Matthew Henry, who is a long, old-time old um, commentator, wrote these three things about this time. He said, Samuel was decaying. Well, it was growing old. His sons were degenerating. They were taking bribes. And Israel was discontented. They wanted a king. And so we find out that's exactly what they do. The elders come before Samuel and they say, hey, we need a king, just like all of the other nations have. Well, God predicted this would happen as well. And so if you are still have your marker in Deuteronomy 16, just turn a page over to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. And I'd like you to see these words here about this whole concept of a king. It actually comes out when God is speaking to Moses long before Samuel ever happens. And I'd like you to train your eyes to verse 14. God says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. So you see, the text indicates that God would indeed allow a king to be appointed in Israel. But we need to understand what their request actually described. It described a complete lack of trust in God. In many ways, the request for a king signified a rebellion against God. This was just another case of people wanting to take the decision-making out of God's hands and to place it in their own. Now, we need to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and here we find out that Samuel didn't think this was a very good idea. It says in verse 6 that this thing was displeasing to the Lord. Or, I'm sorry, to, in the sight of Samuel. So when Samuel prayed to the Lord, God clarified exactly what was happening. For they, verse 7, look at verse 7. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In reality, the elders of Israel were what? Well, they were demanding that God give them another source of happiness and security. Well, we have to un unpack what I would say is the critical issue here. And this critical issue is God knows the hearts of men. From Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, we read these words. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So you see, by, by asking for a king, Israel was rejecting God as their central source of happiness and security. 
But I would offer to you today that rejecting God is not something just for the Old Testament. I think it's happening even today. As a matter of fact, I found an interesting quote, this one by J.D. Greer, where he puts us into two different camps. He says, irreligious people reject God by not wanting him to be a part of their lives at all. Well, that makes sense, right? People who don't believe in God, people who don't follow a religious practice, they just don't want God in their lives at all. However, religious people reject God by letting him be a part of their lives, but not really trusting him or depending on him. And I would say that many people today, maybe even some of us sitting in this room or listening online, want God as their safety net, but they're still primarily trusting in their own strength. So you see, we understand from many of the teachings throughout the Bible that trust and faith, they are the central issues for every believer. We learn from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And from the writer of Proverbs, we're told uh, in Proverbs 3, 5, that we must trust in the Lord with what? All of our hearts, and the word lean not onto our own understanding. You see, to know God, you have to trust him. You have to lean on God. You see, when we don't trust someone, you feel like you have to control them. There are evidences of this in everyday life. For example, Uh, When you enter into an agreement with someone and you want to do it legally, what do you have to do? You have to draw up a contract, and that contract has everybody's responsibilities. Why is that? Well, (laughs) we don't trust people's word very much. And we need guarantees from other people. And so in order to control them, we we say that you must promise me. You must promise to do this. You see, we all want some kind of external assurances that we can see and touch. Why? Well, it's a lot to do with the fact that we don't trust. And when we do this with God, when we do not trust God, we're actually rejecting him as our source of happiness and security. But we know this about God. We know what? We know that he's totally trustworthy and that he's proven to us, both corporately as a church, as a body of Christ, and individually, that he is fully trustworthy. So as we go back to the story, and we're back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have to learn what God says to Samuel when he comes to the Lord about being displeased. First, we see that God reminds Samuel that this is not news to God. Uh, Look in verse 8. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 8. God says these words, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, 
so they're doing this to you also. You see a pattern here. You see a pattern of a lack of trust in the people of Israel. And it showed at this very moment by rejecting God as their king and asking him for a king uh, from among themselves. So, in essence, what God is saying to Samuel is, look, Samuel, I knew this day would come, so I'm going to give them exactly what they asked for. Well, God warns them that if they do this, there's going to be some taking happening. So the critical problem with having a king is this. An earthly king will take from the people. And what will this king take? Well, the passage tells us this. We had heard it read before so well by Kelly and Paula earlier. And beginning in verse 11, we see these words, that a king will take your sons to serve in his army. He'll take some of your sons and make them work in his fields. He'll take your daughters and they'll, con, uh, they'll serve him as his, for his personal needs. He'll take the best of your production to feed his servants. He'll take a tax, a tenth of your goods, to provide for his officers and servants. And he'll take servants and your best livestock, and it'll be used for his purposes. Well, that's a lot of taking. And that's what they got from a king. But we notice the people's response. Even with all of this warning, what do they say? Well, they refused to listen and demanded this king. So God gives them exactly what they ask for. And I wonder, does that happen today? What if God withholds something that we desperately are praying for, but he knows that as protection for us, he keeps it away. Or worse, what happens if we pray and pray and pray desperately for something and God gives it to us and we suffer the consequences? You see, I think that we always need to pray as Jesus taught us, not my will, but thine be done. So now I have some final thoughts for us. And it begins like this. Every life has a king. A king in your life is whatever you must have to be happy and secure. And kings, as we learn here, make all their subjects into servants. Now, Paul reminds us of this, and I've put up a couple of slides for us here. From the book of Galatians, there it is. He says, oh, bless you. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. You see, we serve either God or Satan. Now, that's a horrible thing for us to contemplate, but it's not I who says it. It's the Word of God. And Paul reminds us again, this time in Romans, 
chapter 16. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? You see, the truth is, everyone, all of us, serves something. There are no exceptions. You're either a slave to something that brings life, or you are a slave to something that brings death. Now, following chapter 8, we learn that God gives Israel exactly what they ask for. And true to his word, just as he said, the king... King Saul eventually begins to use the people for his own advantage. The people suffer under this pressure. They suffer as they become servants of this king. And many years later, if you go on into the first and second kings or in Chronicles, we learn that the, these kings actually lead the people of Israel into idol worship and complete alienation from God. But the story of Samuel and Israel is actually pointing us towards God's true king. I want us to get that. This story is pointing us to the true king that God is in this story getting ready to prepare to send to the people, and that true king is Jesus. He's the one that we can fully trust, and he alone can satisfy and save. And just as the Israelites had a choice to make, we too, we have to make a choice. Either we place our faith and trust in Jesus as our king, or we'll continue to embrace worldly securities and wisdom to be our king. And we've learned from our story today, from the word of God, that one choice brings joy and peace, and the other will bring servitude and loss. So, I would ask the question, how do we know that we can trust God fully? I mean, we're looking for externals, but how in the world can we know? How can we be confident that when we submit ourselves to him, that he will lead us to a greater joy? Well, we need only to look at the cross because it's there that we see God poured out his tremendous mercy and grace through the atoning blood of his son, his son who takes away the sin of the world. And we know that Jesus has proven to be a trustworthy king. But I want us to remember that today all of us will make a choice. If you need salvation today, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your king, I want to let you know he's trustworthy. He will do exactly as he has promised to bring you life, abundant life here, and eternal life one day in glory. But if you're here and you know Jesus, he's asking you to uh, walk in a deeper level of sanctification it's something about putting your faith and your trust in him fully and completely. You see, he is the one, Jesus, 
who has promised grace and peace. And even in times of great distress or pain, he will always be there. He's told us that he will be a friend that is closer than a brother. And we know from Jesus that he is the king we need to serve. Let's pray together. Father God, as we have opened up your word and we've learned from the lessons of the life of Samuel, we learn that you are trustworthy. You are totally capable of doing anything and all things for your glory. And Lord, even sometimes when it seems very difficult for us to follow you, that you have sent your Holy Spirit into our lives, and that Spirit will lead us into truth and knowledge and wisdom. And so, Father God, I, I pray for us all as we are here. Jesus, I pray that you would touch our hearts in such a way that if we need you as our Savior, if we need your atoning blood, that today would be the day of salvation. And God, we also pray that if there are people here who need a deeper level of sanctification, a deeper walk with you, that today would be the day that they would choose wisely and that they would commit their lives to you again and follow you in deeper and closer ways. We know that we can only do this through the power of your Spirit the presence of your word in our lives, and through the benefit of submitting ourselves to you. We're grateful for these things, Lord, and we ask that you would bless us and use us for your glory, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.